Grossman, the editor of Dartmouth Medicine Magazine, which explores the art and the science of medicine at Dartmouth Medical School and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. In this Web Extra interview, I'll be talking with P.J. Hamill. P.J. is a senior editor at King Arthur Flower Company and describes herself professionally as a baker and blogger. She writes the King Arthur catalog, creates recipes, and blogs about baking on the company's website. And personally, she is, among many other roles, a cancer survivor. She has also blogged about her experience with breast cancer since shortly after her diagnosis in 2001 at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, where she got all her treatment. PJ says that writing is a thread that has run through her entire life. In a feature for the spring 2009 issue of Dartmouth Medicine, she shared the experiences and emotions of being diagnosed with and treated for breast cancer. Welcome, PJ. Tell me, when you began writing about having cancer, was it painful to put the experience into words, or did you find it cathartic to write about it? It wasn't painful, certainly. It wasn't painful at all. I, I like to write. But it wasn't cathartic either. It was more like a proactive kind of bearing witness. By writing, I was telling myself, you can't control this disease, but you can definitely stand up to it. You can tell cancer it's evil, but it's not going to crush you. Writing is also a form of remembrance for me. I remember a lot of parts of my life through writing. And I wanted to be able to go back to the words I wrote years from now and put myself back in that time and place. And partly to see how far I've come, but partly to re-experience the really good parts of cancer. And there were a lot of good parts. On the other hand, do you think the fact that you're a writer, and thus probably prone to being a bit analytical, means you had an easier time or a harder time going through the experience of having cancer? I think I had an easier time than many going through cancer. Um, as a writer, I'm involved in a constant conversation with myself, and there's always a narrator in my head asking questions and answering questions and offering insight, telling me to pull my socks up and get going. For whenever writing I do, it's this narrator that tells the story, and I just have to sit there and type. So, yeah, during cancer, it was like having someone with me all the time, cheerleading, consoling, being sensible, telling jokes. It was like having a friend with me all the time, and the writing just made the experience easier. What would you say was the single hardest part about the whole process? At first, it was the fear of dying, not for myself, but an intense desire not to leave my family, my husband, my son, my parents. I didn't want to think about them having to mourn me. You know, no one likes to think of that. But that was temporary. Once I got into treatment, it was actually fear of the unknown. You know, what would chemo be like? Everyone has a horror story, story for you, and they all want to tell you their horror story for some reason. Um, how would I handle it? Would I be strong, or would I wimp out? And what about the mastectomy? What would I look like afterwards? There's just so many unknowns about treatment. And that's our biggest source of fear, really, is the unknowns. Fear examined is fear diffused. I found that as I went through treatment. If I would look at what I was afraid of and really pick it apart, I could pretty much make the fear go away. And was there anything particular that buffered the blows in a way you hadn't expected? Oh, definitely. And it was the kindness of strangers. I totally didn't expect that. 
I still get a lump in my throat thinking of the, just the innumerable acts of kindness I experienced, not just from friends and family, but from the medical staff at Hitchcock. I mean, they didn't know me. I was a patient, but they were just so personally kind all the time. And from casual acquaintances and even complete strangers. Losing your hair from chemo and being bald, it seems to create kind of a basic human bond with people, with people everywhere. I was standing in a boarding line at the Philadelphia airport, and a woman in back of me, she saw my bald head, and she said, chemo? And I said, yeah, chemo. And she reached out and just very lightly ran her hand over my head and said, you'll get through this. I know you can do it. Safe journey. And I was so touched by that. I had many similar experiences. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is a national leader in a concept known as shared decision-making. You mentioned in the article you wrote for Dartmouth Medicine your surprise at learning that even though you had a life-threatening disease, you were asked to decide between different treatment options, such as a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy, rather than being told by your doctors what to do. Can you explain how you grappled with that concept at the time and what it has meant for you in the long term? At the time, I think the Center for Shared Decision-Making was fairly new, and they weren't really well-staffed, but they totally helped me make up my mind about lumpectomy versus mastectomy, which is a difficult decision. They uh, gave me a video, and that helped me make up my mind, and I had really been waffling, so they were a big help to me at first. But after that, I was pretty much on my own, and uh, I had a decision of whether or not to do chemo and it's funny, the doctors, they don't really tell you whether you should or you shouldn't. You, they just present you with a lot of statistics. So I decided that I would always go with whatever treatment was um, going to be the best in the long run, no matter how hard it was. And I think chemo was, gonna, was going to lower my risk of recurrence by like 8%, something like that. And I said, well, 8%, sure, that's worth it. So I went ahead and did chemo. And uh, that kind of thing happened over and over again, and I always picked the hardest route. And having made all those decisions, I learned that lots of times you just can't know the outcome of your decision ahead of time. There are no guarantees. So you just have to step off the cliff, basically, and see what happens. And I've carried that attitude with me ever since. I'm a risk taker now, where formerly I was very much into playing it safe. Now it's like, what's the worst that can happen? Die? So what? I've already faced death. Let's not sweat the small stuff here, because really, it's all small stuff when you get down to it. Also, I don't look back, and I don't look too far forward now. No regrets. No woulda, shoulda, coulda, oh, I wish I had, I wish I hadn't. None of that stuff. No long-term plans, either. Life can throw you a curveball any time, so I just go with the flow, and I see where it takes me. You also mentioned in the article that going through your cancer treatments made you lose your self-consciousness. Could you talk about that a little? Well, as a breast cancer patient, you're constantly revealing what you've always considered to be a pretty private part of your anatomy, your breasts. You learn very quickly to put aside any embarrassment and just think of them as another part of you, like your hand or your ear. I remember one morning when I was in the hospital with pneumonia and Dr. Eric came in with like six interns, and he had them all give me a chest exam, one right after the other. Maybe he wanted to see, he wanted them to see what it was like to give a chest exam to someone with a rebuilt breast. So they all did it. They all tapped and they listened, went through the whole routine. I remember some of them had very cold hands, but I wasn't at all embarrassed. 
I was glad to be able to give them the opportunity to practice on a real patient. Is there anything that you think it's important for doctors, nurses, interns, or other healthcare providers who work with cancer patients to know about their needs, wants, and state of mind? Well, I think the folks at Dartmouth-Hitchcock do a great job. I, I really don't have much I could say. But one thing is, um, when you tell someone they have cancer, I think it's important to give them a few minutes to pull themselves together before you launch into the next step of what you're going to be treated for and how it's going to go. I've talked to so many women who say, I heard the word cancer, and that's the last thing I remember. So really, a few minutes to absorb the news would be helpful. And after that, I guess I'd say uh, we're people, not just patients. Most women, I think, are happy to get a, a kind word or a hug along with the inevitable paperwork and prescriptions. And finally, uh, understand that cancer often slows down our thinking. It takes us longer to absorb information because there's that big gorilla sitting in the corner saying, you have cancer, you might die. And it's hard to block that out and deal with things in the clear, quick manner that you usually would, that you're used to dealing with things. What advice do you have for the rest of us as we interact, as inevitably virtually everyone does, with coworkers, neighbors, friends, or family members who have cancer? Well, it's difficult. <clears throat> I realize that because I've been on the other side of it. But I think the first thing I would say is try to act normal. You know, don't be sad. And, and uh, I had so many people that would come up to me and say, how are you today? Instead of just like, oh, how are you? And uh, it's nice to just be treated the same as you've always been treated. But don't act like cancer doesn't exist either because it does. It's there. So it's best to be matter of fact. You know, tell a joke or say, oh, you have cancer. Huh? that's too bad. You know, would you like to talk about it? And um, we're still people. We crave normalcy. And moaning to us about the horrible day you had at work is perfectly acceptable, even welcome. I mean, there's no hierarchy of misery with only cancer patients earning the right to complain. Everyone has a right to complain. The more you act like you've always acted with us, the better, <clears throat> the more normal we feel. You write a little in your article about how hard it was for your teenage son during your treatment for cancer. Now, on reflection, eight years later, do you have any words of wisdom for other cancer patients with teenage children? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, when your teenage kids seem totally unconcerned and selfish and even, like, don't even notice that you have cancer, just let it slide right off your back. They're in a really difficult period of their own lives, and your cancer has added a huge additional burden to them. Of course they care about you, but they can't deal with everything at once. Some kids will be very kind and compassionate, but I think that takes a pretty mature kid. From what I've heard from other moms, many kids will tell them years later how scared they were and how bad they felt, but in the moment, they can't tell you that. Your cancer becomes just one more element in their internal struggle. So just be there for them. Be available. If they want to talk, they will. And if not, even your physical presence is a comfort, a comfort they treasure all the more because they're afraid they'll lose it. They really are. Medicine is gradually coming to realize that even for patients who do very well after being treated for cancer, there are issues of survivorship that may never go away. In fact, Dartmouth-Hitchcock has started a program called CARES, standing for Cancer and Related Events Survivorship, to help address those issues. Can you explain some of the implications of survivorship? 
Well, once you've had cancer, you're never quite sure who to go to with physical problems. Is that pain in your back a pulled muscle, or should you worry about bone cancer? In the bone loss you get from your ongoing cancer drugs, who tends to that? Not the oncologist, certainly. He or she is, you know, busy with people that have cancer. But probably not your PCP either, because generally PCPs don't know a lot about cancer survivorship issues. So there's a lot of confusion around who's treating you for what they call the lasting effects of cancer, which pretty much continue the rest of your life. And also, when you finish active treatment, you probably feel some fear. You've had a huge amount of care, and now it's just done. It's over. You feel like, who's watching out for me now? Having the survivorship program available is like a security blanket. You know you can go there anytime, and they'll help you with whatever you're experiencing. And finally, as a cancer survivor, you're always in a push-pull with yourself about being strong and being scared. Cancer is always with you in the back of your head somewhere, and it's tiring and discouraging sometimes to keep squashing down that fear that it might come back. And the folks at the survivorship clinic understand that. It's a place you can go and not feel like a wimp for being scared. Thank you for talking with me, PJ. This interview is a copyrighted production of Dartmouth Medicine Magazine. The views expressed here are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of Dartmouth Medical School or Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. To comment on this interview or to learn more about Dartmouth Medicine, go to http colon slash slash dartmed.dartmouth.edu. Dartmouth